Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Today, we start the first episode of a two-part examination of the deep science behind the coronavirus. In this episode, we'll be joined by microbiologist Susan Weiss from the University of Pennsylvania, Perlman School of Medicine, where her lab focuses on coronavirus pathogenesis. She is also a co-director of Penn's newly founded Center for Research on Coronaviruses and Other Emerging Pathogens. Dr. Weiss is here to discuss the biology and epidemiology of the coronavirus and how the scientific community is working to better understand the intricacies of this virus. Thank you, Dr. Weiss, for joining us today. Uh, Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and we're excited for the conversation. And we've had a lot of conversations with others around the various medicines that many people around the world are working on, whether it be therapies or vaccines. And it occurred to us that we really need to do a primer, if you will, um, a, a biology 101 on viruses for our audience since viruses are very unique and tricky creatures. And we thought it would be really helpful to start with some of the foundational elements and understanding what a virus is and how it works. Well, a virus is really a very simple thing that has, but that's very clever and can do all, all kinds of things to, to its host cell. But the, the virus itself is actually, the particle is called a virion, and it's composed of uh, a piece of genetic material that can either be DNA, which you've probably heard of, which is our genetic material, or it can have only RNA as its genome. Um, and this RNA or DNA is wrapped up with proteins in kind of a capsid, it's called. And then many viruses, coronaviruses for one, have a membrane around them. And that membrane is made out of lipids, which are really just fats. And that membrane comes from the host cell. And in that membrane, it has other proteins sticking out of it. And these proteins that stick out, are, are, in the case of coronaviruses, are called spikes. But many viruses have very similar proteins. And that's the protein that attaches to the host cell. It recognizes a receptor on the host cell. And through this interaction, the virus enters the cell. One thing that's important to note about viruses are they're not really alive. They're, they're able to replicate, but only inside of the cell. If you have a virus uh, just sitting on a tabletop or in water or whatever, it, it can't really replicate. It's not really dead or alive. It's different from a bacteria. But if we touch a surface that's been where a virus has been recently deposited, we can contract the disease so when you say it's not alive, what state is it? If I, I can, thought you were going to get it. That. So it's kind of, I would guess it's like, it, it's not, it's static. It's not growing and it's not dead. It's sitting there. Um, and it won't last there that long. I mean, as a period of time, it'll, it'll decay. There's all viruses will have a half-life. They, they can be denatured or fall apart from heat or from even UV light or anything like that. So yes, if you put down some virus on a tabletop and someone else comes by and touches it and puts it in their nose or eyes, <clears throat> yes, they can catch the virus, but it's not, it's not going to actually replicate. The amount that you put down on the table is just going to decrease over time rather than replicate. So the spike somehow enables it to gain entry into the cell in the case yes. of a coronavirus, which has the spike, and then what happens next? 
Okay, and, and that's a really general thing. So like a herpes virus has other proteins. They're not called spikes, but they're, they have the same function. So many, many viruses have the same kind of function. And so that okay. um, protein, it recognizes a receptor on the host cell. That could be, they're, very, they're all different proteins for different viruses, and they have other functions, these receptors. They just happen to be proteins that the virus can kind of latch onto. Once it latches onto it, um, the spike protein undergoes a change or a change in its conformation. And, um, and the virus, the virus, as I said, has a fatty lipid envelope, it's called, around it or a membrane. That membrane fuses with the host cell membrane and, and then the inside of the virus or the capsid can get, um, kind of pushed into the, or released into the cell and so that it can start replicating. So it leaves the membrane behind and just the inner part of the capsid gets into, into the cell and begins the process of replicating. And so within the host cell, the virus is actually just growing in the sense that it's just re replicating itself over and over again? Yeah, you wouldn't call it growing because it doesn't get bigger and it doesn't, it replicates, um, it kind of takes over the host cell. So, so it leaves its membrane, we call it uncoding. So now the DNA or the RNA and its proteins surrounding it are, we say it's sort of um, released into the cell. And once it's there, it starts making proteins and then those proteins can start replicating the RNA. So it's not like you get like bacteria, you, they divide and you get one to two to four to eight with viruses. They just start spinning off huge amounts, many numbers of co thousands of copies of that RNA, of its genome RNA. It replicates itself and it makes um, messenger RNAs. Those are RNAs that encode for proteins. So it makes lots of RNA and lots of proteins. And then it reassembles itself um, into new virus particles that then leave the cell. Uh, sometimes they kill the cell, sometimes they don't. So what does the disease consist in? In other words, we've got this virus that's fused into the cell, and mm -hmm. it's replicating itself. So I could understand that if it kills the cell, that's, that would seem, I'm not sure what the right word is, a pathogenic activity. <laughs> is that what the coronavirus is doing? It's actually killing the cell, or is, it, or is the disease consistent in something else? Well, it, it's, it's sort of a combination. Um, it may kill some cells and not kill other cells, but, but in a way, the virus doesn't want to kill everything because if it killed everything, it couldn't replicate. It wants to make more of itself and then go on to the next cell and replicate in the next cell and the next cell. But one of the side effects of infection is the host cell is going to respond to that. So the host cell is right. going to make lots of, yeah, like cytokines. You've heard of, probably everyone's heard mm -hmm. of the cytokine storm. Um, so that yes. cytokine storm is initiated by uh, the cell realizing that it's infected. It responds by trying, those cytokines are meant to get rid of the virus, but an over-exuberance can be destructive to the, to the lungs in the case of the coronaviruses, but just can be destructive to the host. Okay, mm -hmm. so, so that's, that's the basic life cycle of, of a virus. Mm -hmm. that, that's our basic foundation. Yep. Okay, so in the case of the coronavirus, is there anything, um, and, and you've studied coronaviruses for decades. Yes. What makes yes, this have. coronavirus fundamentally different than, than other coronaviruses, or, or is it? 
Um, the, it's true. It's not fundamentally different. If you if we look at the the genome, which is the, again the genetic material, and compare that to SARS coronavirus, the original SARS coronavirus, I call sometimes SARS one from the one that was emerged in China in 2002. They're very very similar. They're I think 95 or 96 percent of their sequences are similar. So it's not like you look at it and say, well, this one has a new gene that maybe is making it more pathogenic. It's it's pretty tricky, really, because um, all coronaviruses have pretty similar genetic materials, or, or I shouldn't say all of them, but these lethal ones. Um, but um, but they're behaving so differently, and that, to me, that's really mysterious. What you said is absolutely correct. This this virus seems to be more transmissible. It seems to be transmissible before someone actually shows symptoms of being sick, and it seems to. It, it actually the lethality is much lower than the original SARS or MERS coronaviruses, just a percent of infected people. But it's so mm-hmm. tricky because because. Yeah, we don't. We didn't see with those first two epidemics. We didn't. There weren't people walking around on the street with the virus that were in a, were not apparently sick. So, and and like I said, it really is puzzling that we can't. We don't know why that is from the genetics of the virus. Not at all obvious. And and is it puzzling at all that there's such a wide spectrum of individual responses to it? I mean, obviously, you're always going to have people that have compromised immune systems or potentially mm-hmm. people that are more elderly, I would imagine, are always more susceptible. But even within the range of individuals that we see that um, tragically are are felled by this virus, you know, you see people that are seemingly young and healthy in, in certain cases, um, or even if they're not um, ultimately killed by it, they get very, very ill. Then there are other people that, I mean, we hear the 70 or 80% of the people that contracted have no symptoms whatsoever. Is that is that typical or is that a bit unusual um, for, compared to the other coronaviruses? Compared to the other coronaviruses, I think it's very unusual. Um, that people, Like I said, people that had SARS were very sick and something like 10% of them died, much more than we're seeing mm. with this coronavirus. Um, but because people were so sick, they were put in the hospital, they were isolated, and it was easy to contain the virus, or relatively easy. It lasted for eight months, and then it was gone. And I don't think anybody thinks that's going to happen with this one. And that was also true with MERS coronavirus. That um, Well, MERS coronavirus is still infecting people in the Middle East, but again, people are really sick. And I think here the the issue is that um, we we just we just can't tell when... Um, we just can't tell who has the virus. And I, I asked a friend of mine who's a medical doctor. I'm not a physician. Uh, does this seem really surprising? Because to me, it did. And he, he said, well, you know, for example, other viruses like some of the flaviviruses, West Nile virus or Zika virus, you can have very inapparent infections. And then every now and then somebody gets really sick. So um, maybe it's not that unusual. It is unusual for a coronavirus. Um, and one of the reasons... a impact. I think no. so. Um, and one of the reasons that um, it's so um, dramatically that people are getting so sick is that we have no immunity to, to SARS coronavirus. We've never seen it in the U.S. before. And even in, I don't know if people that had the original SARS, if they were, um, if they would be immune or semi-immune, if they were sort of immunized against this future SARS virus by having the original one, I don't really know. But there's, it's sort of like when, when, when flu comes around, um, most people have had some flu or a flu shot. So even if they get infected, they may not get that sick. Whereas here, we're completely naive to it. So we're like sitting ducks, I think. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. The idea that 
there could be some immunity from a um, another virus that may be very similar, but not exactly identical to this virus, a different kind of coronavirus, but very few people would have even had exposure to those earlier coronaviruses. But it would have to be relatively close. I'm, I'm, I said, for example, SARS coronavirus. Like if there right. were a vaccine, had been a vaccine, maybe that would have worked against this virus. I think for MERS coronavirus is going to be too, too far. I don't think it would give any kind of immunity to this virus. So we have some basic stages of the life cycle we've just defined, which is mm-hmm. um, at least in terms of its relationship to its ultimate host. It's the mm-hmm. entry. And then there's the replication, and then it moves on to the next cell. So mm-hmm. when you think about those stages, um, are there particular stages from an intervention standpoint that medicines try to target to try to stop the activity? And are there certain stages that tend to be more successful than others? Well, there, there's, we don't know who, we don't know what's successful yet. Everyone's trying to figure that out. But I mean, we know from other viruses. So the first step that's often targeted is, um, is viral entry. I talked about how the viral, the spike protein attaches to its receptor and then it, it mediates what we call fusion, which is fusion of the viral membrane envelope with the cell envelope and release of the capsid into the um, cytoplasm of the cell or into the interior of the cell. And for coronaviruses, they have, there are two possible pathways they can use to enter. This may get a little detailed, but um, I'll try to explain it uh, simply. No, that's okay. The spike attaches to this, the ACE2, which is the angiotensin converting enzyme or the, the receptor. And it can, it can either at that point just fuse right into the cell, right at the membrane there, or it can be endocytosed into the membrane. That means that a vesicle kind of uh, envelops it into itself and it go, it, it's deposited into the cell in a vesicle, like in a bubble kind of thing. And then from that vesicle, it fuses into the cytoplasm. And that may seem like kind of a subtle difference, but, um, but the reason why that's important is that that second, the, the second method through that bubble, um, is, requires a low pH or an acidic pH. And there's some enzymes in that vesicle called catepsin that has to be activated to release the virus part. And that only happens at low pH. Okay, so yeah, chloroquine and, and is one of the drugs. And hydrochloroquine are drugs that have been bandied yep. about and probably in clinical trials now as um, as an antiviral drug. And the, and the way that chloroquine works is it prevents that acidification of the uh, of the endosome. So it's a kind of general mechanism. So any virus that requires that low pH step um, should be sensitive to chloroquine, or we'll find out if it is. Do we know that the coronavirus um, gains entry or fusion through that second method? It's a little more complicated. Um, so, so coronaviruses can use both pathways. The first pathway doesn't require the low pH, but it may require an extra um, protease step. So the spike protein has to be cut or cleaved in two places to activate it. This gets a little bit complicated too. And those cleavages depend on sequences in the, in the spike protein and they also depend on enzymes on the cell that makes the virus and the cell that virus is entering. So it's a kind of a complicated mixture of what the sequence of the spike is and what enzymes are available to cut, to cut the virus. So some coronaviruses will enter mostly through the cell surface. Some will enter mostly through the endosome and need the low pH step. And some can do both. And on top of that, it's even more complicated because um, different cell types express different enzymes, so they may so this virus may be more likely to use one pathway or the other um, in one cell type or the other. 
Does that kind of make sense? But essentially what you're going to tell me, I think, unfortunately, yeah. is that we don't know yet which COVID-19 is in terms of how it gains entry, right? Well, we, we know a little. There's some data about that. Um, there's some studies that say that um, it, that this, uh, this enzyme called TIMPERS um, is, is, is important for entry of SARS-CoV-2. And that may be only on a particular cell type that it was tested on. So that if, if the virus uses tempers, it would suggest that it's going to go in through the membrane directly and not through the, um, through the endosome. But, but if it were to do that, then chloroquine really shouldn't work. So to me, um, if you use chloroquine, you might kind of force it to go in through the through the membrane. If you use the TIMPERS inhibitor, you might kind of force it to go in through the endosome because maybe it can go in by both pathways. Some viruses can go in through both pathways. Um, so my prediction is that probably, you'd ha- and this is just a prediction, that you probably have to shut down both pathways if you want to really shut down viral entry. Well, so there's been, as I think we all know, pretty, I think at best, we could say mixed results with the chloroquine certainly has been far from a, a slam dunk. But that doesn't mean that perhaps if it was used in conjunction with one of those other drugs that blocks the other path, maybe the two of them together could be effective. I, I would think theoretically, yes. Um, you know, I don't know that, I don't know if we know exactly that chloroquine only acts by, um, by disallowing low pH. Maybe it does other things as well. I've heard that it, it may have other mechanisms, but I, I don't really know. But yeah, I would, I would think that if you shut down both pathways really well, that that would be like a combination therapy to prevent, um, viral entry. Are there any other medicines or compounds, if you will, that are in, either being used off-label or in development that um, you've heard anything about in terms of being effective at this stage? Yeah, for Mm, entry for COVID-19. I don't know whether it be, I mean, I think the remdesivir, we're going to talk about, that's more of a a one that targets replication, right? right? I mean, there are inhibitors of tempers, but that's theoretically one way to go to try to inhibit that. There's also furin is another one of the enzymes that um, actually it's an intracell, it's inside of the cell, but it also cleaves that spike protein to get it sort of semi-activated for entry. So if you were, if you treated cells with a furin inhibitor, this is just all theoretical. I don't know whether they really, drugs like that exist or if they work or anything, but if you could inhibit that furin stage, um, you might end up producing virus that was unable to to infect the next cell. So I think that these host cell proteases are probably a good uh, potential target. You, you, you and your, your team have spent so many, so many years looking at coronaviruses and evaluating or, or defining these, these processes and mechanisms. I would imagine that the work that's going on now to try to identify um, inhibitors, if you will, antivirals inhibitors yeah. for, for these activities, it has to stand on the shoulders of all the work that's already been done over the years so that had we not had MERS, had we not had SARS, um, we wouldn't be as far along in hopefully getting closer to a solution, whether it's a generic solution that works against all the coronaviruses or something even just specifically around against COVID-19, uh, all the, the work that's already occurred has has got to be very important in, in, in moving us along. Yeah, I just should correct you that COVID-19 is the disease. The virus is actually called SARS-CoV-2. And the reason it's okay. called SARS-CoV-2 is it's almost the same as the original SARS. So um, just, to, just to be more precise about the nomenclature. Was SAR, the original SARS was SARS-CoV-1? 
Well, it was just called SARS-CoV because we didn't know there's going to be another one, right? Got it. Okay, <laughs> it of course, SARS-CoV. Okay. respiratory syndrome, right? And then MERS is Middle yes. East respiratory, right? So now this one, there was a lot of controversy about the name, but it was named SARS-CoV-2 because it genetically it's pretty close to SARS-CoV-1 um, or SARS-CoV. So, so all that work that you you've done and others around the world is very critical as as a building block upon which people are now putting many times more energy into trying to develop these um, inhibitors or antivirals and yes. for the processes that you've just described. Well, let me go. Can I go back a little further? I'm not, yeah. not to SARS. So SARS was 2002, but I'm going back to the 60s and 70s. We knew about, hum, we knew about human cold coronaviruses, uh, OC43 and 2290. There were people worked on them. They didn't work on them super hard because they were cold viruses and they weren't that of that much concern. But there are a lot of animal coronaviruses that were worked on quite a lot, like a chick, IBV chicken virus, BCV, cow virus and uh, some porcine viruses. And we worked on mouse hepatitis virus because it was just a model. So it was all those work on those viruses before we even knew about SARS that really built up. That's how we know about viral proteases. That's how we know that they make this long polyprotein and 16 non-structural proteins. All of that was, a lot of that was known before SARS. So that when SARS arose in China, I can tell you everyone in my field was absolutely amazed. We couldn't believe it. We were just we were shocked because there had been no evidence up until then that, that coronaviruses could cause severe diseases in humans, which is kind of strange in a way because we knew they could cause severe diseases in um, in other animals. Um, but it was because of all that knowledge. I mean, when SARS arose, it was sequenced. The genome was sequenced really quickly. It was cloned so that people could work with it. Um, just, uh, it was, yeah, I mean, there's an amazing amount of work that went on before that. And then once when SARS uh, arose, Many, many, many people started working on these viruses in a way that it was shocking, actually. Um, the field was very small before SARS, and then it grew enormously at that time. And we learned a lot more of the details, like these enzymes I'm talking to you about. People were, had actually figured out the crystal structures of them. And that's important because mm-hmm. um, if you know the structure, you can kind of model what kind of um, inhibitor might um, combine with it and prevent it from having its activity. So what is the relationship that you and your team play as what I'm thinking in my mind is extremely basic fundamental science vis-a-vis the the specialists that are trying to develop these antivirals? Are they or do you interact with them and and you know are the different drug companies asking you questions about the behavior of the of this virus? How is how is the um the collaboration work across these different specialties? You know, in the time before 2002, I think the field was pretty much ignored. After SARS, I gave more seminars than I've ever given in my life. And I was, I did talk to some um, drug companies about, you know, like just wanting advice and stuff like that. So, so there was a burst there. I personally, I'm a really, really basic science. Um, Some of my colleagues are doing more, more like uh, actually drugs, not really drug studies, but yeah, but looking for inhibitors in their own labs, but on a kind of a, a smaller level. My colleague Sarah Cherry now at, at Penn is doing um, a massive uh, drug screening against this virus. So, um, you know, if she finds something, I, I assume a drug company would pick up and wanting to want to uh, develop it. But again, like we defined what some of these proteins are initially, uh, not just we, but we, our field. And that's incredibly important. Like um, 
Remdesivir, the reason that uh, people even tried it on coronaviruses is it was originally designed or used for Ebola. And the reason why you might even think it would work on this virus is that um, RNA, it turns out that RNA polymerases, that's the enzyme that copies RNA into RNA, they're kind of structurally similar even among different viruses. Coronaviruses all have these 16 proteins they make that are conserved. Some, some of these sort of protein domains, you might find similar ones in other viruses. So yeah. when you put it all together and you think about from what you've seen, and I know that your vision is not comprehensive, nobody does. <laughs> no, it's not. Is there, right, is there a particular class of antivirals or a couple of drugs or anything that you think um, at this very early stage seems to be most promising? I can't really assess that. I can really talk more theoretically. I mean, to me, that it, you know, I don't know about remdesivir, but a drug like that seems like um, a pretty good starting point. I mean, these viruses don't change that much anyway. Um, the proteases, I mean, if, if you, if you, if you um, inhibit the protease, you really have to stop the infection. So I don't really have a prejudice as to which one might be better than the other. It really just depends how well the inhibitor works on because all of okay. these functions are, are required for replication. What's the difference between changing gears a bit here? Okay. The difference between Preventing the virus from entering the cell in the first place, mm -hmm. and what I would think a vaccine is, which would be something that would somehow prevent the virus from getting into my cells. There's obviously a difference between a medicine that's aimed at preventing that initial stage of entry, like chloroquine that we talked about, yeah. versus vaccine. How do you compare those? Well, a vaccine obviously is prophylactic. A vaccine should do should really theoretically prevent viral entry too, because if you make antibodies that we, that are so called, you've heard of maybe neutralizing antibodies. That means that they'll neutralize mm -hmm. the virus and prevent it. They they usually are directed against the spike protein. So if they're really good neutralizing antibodies, they should affect. They should prevent that infection. So. I mean, in a sense, it's kind of targeting the same the same step. But also, but if 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 it leaks through and it does get if the virus if the virus does infect cause some kind of infection because nothing's a hundred percent, the new virus will still have to deal with the um, the antibody response from the vaccine. So, so maybe in a sense, it's looking at both entry and then spread as well. But so is the entry inhibitor. In the case of a a therapy. Mm -hmm. It's the actual medicine that's preventing, cha changing something in, the, in in the human body to prevent the entry. But in the case of a vaccine, it's actually stimulating the body to create the antibodies or whatnot to prevent yeah, the entry. Is yeah, that I guess, yeah, you could, yeah. So it's a different mediator of the um, block and entry, but but it's still both kind of at a, trying to the the goal is to prevent the virus from getting into the cell. The, the vaccine also will, will work on any virus that does leak through the cell. If you have a T-cell response as well as a, an antibody response, you might also kill infected cells. So that's an, an added right. step that you wouldn't have with a, with, a, um, with a drug, with a vaccine. It depends if the vaccine is inducing a good B-cell and or T-cell response. If you think about the groundswell of interest after SARS mm -hmm. relative to previous where mm -hmm. there's many, many more people focused and interested on this. Even right. real, even compared to that, the number of people that are focused on it now is is probably an order of magnitude of oh, yeah. many, many or, times. Or two orders of magnitude, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So given that 
massive interest now, of course. The world is trying to solve this. How do you see your work changing or progressing in right, a different well, way than it might have had this not happened? Um, well, we have a new virus to work on. We want to know why this virus is different. So one of the things, like I said, I'm still doing very basic research because that's where my strength is, I think, and that's where I can be helpful. So we study how the virus has um, antagonized the host innate immune response. We didn't really talk about the innate response very much. That's interferon, and that's a really early response, not really specific to that virus, but any kind of when a cell sees double-stranded RNA, which is a product of virus replication, that's seen as a danger signal by cells. And it and they see that and they make interferon and they also activate some other antiviral pathways, antiviral activities. And coronaviruses are really good at, at stopping that or antagonizing that innate response. So what my lab has been interested in the last 10 years or so is like, how does, how do viruses do that? We've done it with, we've worked on that with the MERS coronavirus and the mouse virus. Um, and so we want to do that um, with SARS-CoV-2, and what, and we also want to um, create a mouse model. So in order to infect mice with this virus, you have to make transgenic mice that express the SARS-CoV-2 receptor or ACE2, human ACE2. And so once mm-hmm. you have that, we can actually make mutant viruses and try to probe, try to determine which parts of the viral genome are really causing pathogenesis. So in that sense, we get towards the disease process. Um, and if we uncover <clears throat> things that the virus does to the cell, it will help us figure out um, what steps to target. Like there, you can also target uh, host cell pathways and boost them up rather than just trying to, <coughs> excuse me, inhibit the virus. So that's where, that's where I'm, my interest is. Like, how does this uh, virus prevent the host cell response? Interesting. So, let me try to summarize quickly what I think okay. we covered today. Um, and I'm going to talk about three key takeaways. And the okay. third one, I'm going to add a little, a little bit, and you have to tell me if I've got it right. <laughs> okay. So I think the first one, the first two really are around providing a basic foundation of knowledge for our listeners to understand that when we talk about different therapies that are being developed, whether mm-hmm. whether they're being, whether they've already pre-existed and they're being used so-called off-label for, for uh-huh. um, this particular virus or whether um, they're new medicines that are being created, they're typically either targeting the entry stage or the replication stage of the process, the life cycle of a virus. Um, and that it, to the extent that we can think about those therapies in those terms, it helps advance our understanding and um, put things in perspective in terms of the development of these medicines. But the third thing that I think I find fascinating is that to me, this is a double-edged sword in a way from the perspective of what we all want, right? Which is a solution to this horrible problem that we're all confronting mm-hmm. is that there's still a tremendous amount of basic science occurring. And on the one hand, that is incredibly reassuring that there are people like yourself, doctor, that are working to better understand the most basic uh, processes and mechanisms of the, of the virus and those insights may lead to the medicine or the therapy that ultimately gets us out of this predicament. But at the same time, that's a long process. It's probably the case that the medicines that would come from or will come from the basic science that you're engaged in today are not 30 or 60, 90 days away. They're probably Correct. quite a bit further out on the horizon Correct. than that. 
So it's great to know that basic science is happening, but um, it, it, it suggests there's still so much we don't know at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. But suppose in 2002, we hadn't stopped studying SARS or we hadn't let that lag. Had we really pushed on vaccines or, or antiviral drugs at that time, maybe it wouldn't. we would be there now, right? So That's it right. is true that yep. basic science is slow, but it's important because if you look back to even, you know, 40 years ago, um, if we hadn't done any of that work when SARS first arose, we would have been clueless. We wouldn't have known how to deal with it at all. So I think what you said is absolutely correct, but I also think that it's important to keep plugging on the basic science forward. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Slowly forward. I mean, we may be lucky and find a, hopefully we will find a, a vaccine, um, but that doesn't negate the fact that there are going to be many aspects and, and facets of how these viruses operate that we don't understand. Just because we find a vaccine doesn't mean that we've unlocked our unlimited knowledge of the vaccine. And so we continue with the basic science regardless, but as we advance the basic science, it really increases the chance over time of coming up with a therapies and medicines because we understand how they operate better. We know what to go after. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely true. But I mean, I think a vaccine would be really, really wonderful. I mean, that's what's really yeah. going to make people be, feel safe when they go out on the street, <laughs> you know, now. I mean, even when we start relaxing, staying home, I think that uh, having a vaccine would make me feel a lot safer. Yes, me too. <laughs> yeah. So, Well, thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Weiss. It's been really absolutely fascinating. And I want to ask our audience to please stay tuned for part two. We were going to be joined by Dr. Offer Levy from Harvard Medical School to discuss advances in therapeutics and vaccine development in terms of specific therapies. Armed with the knowledge that we've taken today from our conversation today with Dr. Weiss, we'll be able to apply that to the conversation uh, with Dr. Levy in a couple of days when our next episode is released. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank 
and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved. <laughs>